Hey, good morning, Grace Point. Uh, I hope you've had a great morning of worship already. Uh, we're going to continue worshiping this morning as we encounter and engage God's word. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to ask if you would just pause with me for a moment. I just want to pray for us as we prepare to encounter God's word. So let's pray this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, who you are, that you're a God of grace and a God of love and a God of mercy and a God who is near to us even in seasons of challenge or difficulty. God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have through technology to worship as a church, even as we're spread out all throughout the surrounding communities. And God, I just pray this morning that wherever our people are gathered right now, God, that they would have a tangible sense of your presence, that right now the Holy Spirit would fill the rooms that they're in, and God, that there would be a tangible sense of your nearness and a very real and tangible sense of your presence. And Father, as we open up your word together as a community, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would not just listen passively, but God, that we would hear and heed your word for us this morning. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, I want to ask you this question that I want you to think about with me. Have, have you ever had this experience of, of mistaken identity, e either with yourself or with someone else? Uh, maybe it's someone that you thought you recognized and, and maybe you wave and say hi and you realize it's not them. Uh, it can be kind of a disorienting moment. I had one of those this week as I rode my bike into church uh, on Tuesday morning to do some sermon prep. Um, I was riding up 17th Avenue North and, and I saw somebody walking on the sidewalk towards me and they smiled and kind of waved and as they did, I thought I recognized this person. And so I said, hey, and I started waving kind of like a madman because I thought it was somebody I recognized. And I even shouted out their name like, hey, so-and-so. And it wasn't until I got closer that I realized the person's smile and wave turned to a look of confusion. And, and I realized the person whose name I'd yelled out loud, it wasn't even this person. It was a total stranger that, that I had never met before. And there was this moment for both of us where we're kind of confused uh, because I realized I have no idea who they are. They have absolutely no idea who I am. And, and, and a case of mistaken identity can be disorienting because there's this whole realm of, of frame of reference for a relationship you think you have that when it turns out to not be that person, it's, it's confusing. Uh, one lady experienced this in a really profound way. Her name was, was Cindy. And her and her husband had traveled to Cancun, Mexico uh, for what was supposed to be their dream vacation. And, and for all intents and purposes, initially, it was their dream vacation. They spent a week on the beaches of Cancun, relaxing and just soaking up some sun. It, it was the kind of vacation where like throughout the week, they could just feel the tension sort of melt from their shoulders and they just really felt relaxed. Well, for this couple, as they flew back to the United States and back home at the end of this week, they landed in Houston for, for their layover and they had to walk through customs and swipe their passports again. And they're walking through customs and Cindy swipes her passport. And at this point, the, the man who's with TSA or Homeland Security, he's typing on his computer and, and he kind of has this look like something's not okay. And she thinks, well, I have no idea what it could be. And he continues to type and finally says, ma'am, you're not going to be able to board your flight home. And at this point, she's like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Why, why can't I board my flight home? And the man turns to her and he says, is your name Cindy? And he says her last name. And she says, well, that's my maiden name, but I haven't used that name in years. 
And he goes, okay, well, I'm going to need you to step aside. At this point, two officers step up and they say, you're under arrest. You actually have a warrant out for your arrest for fraudulent charges in the state of Missouri. And at this point, she's, she's totally beside herself. She goes, there's no way. Like, I've never made fraudulent charges. I have no idea what's happening. So they take her into custody. They take her to the state of Missouri where she is booked into the, the prison system. She's searched. I mean, it's a humiliating experience for her. And come to find out what had happened is she shared the same last name as this person who had a warrant out for her arrest, but they mistyped her birth year and her birth year happened to match this person with the same name now that it was mistyped. And because of this case of mistaken identity, this lady was arrested for a crime that she never committed. And, and the whole reason this arrest happened was because of a case of mistaken identity. This lady, Cindy, she was not who the authorities thought she was. And mistaken identity, again, it can be disorienting because you have this whole idea of who you think someone is that when they turn out to not be that person, it, it's, it's really a moment of, what is this? And, and even as a pastor, I experience these moments of sort of mini mistaken identity that, that throws people off. When I'm in moments of, of small talk, when I meet somebody for the first time, uh, say on an airplane flight or just in passing, there's often this moment in those conversations where it turns to the question, what do you do for a living? And, and as soon as I tell someone that I'm a pastor, uh, there's a whole range of responses. For some people, as soon as I say, oh yeah, I'm a pastor, they go, uh, I'm sorry. And they start to apologize for things they said previously in the conversation because they didn't think I was a pastor. And so now there's this case of, oh, you're not who I thought you were. In other cases, uh, when I tell them I'm a pastor, they, they start making excuses about like, oh, you know, I really should be back in church more. And you can almost see the sense of guilt and shame rise in them. And, and for others, as soon as they hear my identity as a pastor, they go, okay, we're, we're just done. Conversation's over right? Because there's this whole frame of assumptions about my identity, about who I am. And who I am, my identity, in some sense, rightly or wrongly, determines their response to me. Now, the reason I say all that is this. John chapter 9 is this passage in the gospel of John that really pushes us to wrestle again with this question of, of who is Jesus? What is, what is his ultimate identity? And the reason this is important is because what we believe about Jesus determines how we respond to him. And so understanding his identity is fundamentally important for determining a right response for who Jesus is. So John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, says this. As he went along, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, 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 he only looks like him. But he himself, the blind man, insisted, I, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So right away in the gospel of John, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple after being part of the Feast of Tabernacles festivities that were happening there. 
And as they're leaving, they see this man who's been born blind. And the disciples ask this, this interesting question. They ask Jesus, who, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him? Was it his parents? And their assumption is that this man's blindness is, is punishment f- for sin. But Jesus makes an interesting statement. Jesus says, it was neither this man who sinned or his family, but Jesus said, this man experienced blindness. Why? Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. So here's the first thing that I want us to notice out of the gospel of John chapter 9. It's that challenging seasons can be opportunities to see God's glory and to see God glorified. Because what what this man went through in being born blind was a significant challenging season of struggle, of suffering, of difficulty. Because in this culture, to be born blind likely meant that he was socially marginalized. He, he was for sure economically marginalized. I mean, he sits outside the temple courts daily, begging, trying to survive, living on the fringes of society. And so this has been a significant season of suffering. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, but it wasn't because of sin. This happened so that God's glory and his work might be revealed. And I want us to recognize that, that for us, I mean, we're in a season that is, is challenging. I mean, many of us are facing economic difficulty and challenges during this season. But what I want us to recognize is that a challenging season of struggle or difficulty can often be an opportunity to see God's grace and to see God's glory and a moment for God to bring glory to himself in a very real and tangible way. Now, I know, I know for some of us, as soon as I say that, you're going, yeah, but that doesn't seem right that God would, would allow suffering in order to bring glory to himself. But what I think is so beautiful about this is that what it does is it gives this blind man's story a deep meaning and significance because what it says is that his suffering was not for, for nothing. His, his challenging circumstance, his struggle has meaning and purpose and significance because God uses it to have an impact in the lives of numerous people. I mean, I mean, think about this. I, I think this blind man had no concept of how impactful this moment would be. I mean, just imagine this. 2,000 years later, we are still talking about this blind man's legacy of faith in the Gospel of John. And what we see then is that his suffering, his challenging circumstance is given new significance and purpose as God reveals himself and his work and his glory in and through this man's suffering. I mean, this man probably never thought, you know what, 2,000 years from now, I bet in in South Dakota, there's going to be people watching on TV as my story is talked about. He couldn't even imagine that. And yet here we are 2,000 years later talking about the significant work that God did in his life. And what I want to suggest to you is, is something similar. Realize that in your season of difficulty and challenge and struggle, that this is an opportunity to see God's glory in a very real and a very tangible way. And part of what we wrestle with, I think there's three things that we wrestle with in a challenging circumstance. I think the first thing that we wrestle with is God's timing. I mean, this man could look at his life and say, God, why didn't you heal me sooner? I mean, we know at this point he was born blind, but at this point he's an adult. So he's lived his whole life up to this point blind. God, why didn't you heal me 20 years ago? And I think sometimes just like this blind man, we might wrestle with God's timing and say, God, why didn't you heal me sooner? Other times, I think in the middle of a challenging circumstance, it's not just God's timing, but perseverance is difficult. And perseverance is all about continuing to live out faithfully the kind of people that God has called us to be while we wait for his purpose to be unfolded. And there's been challenging circumstances in my life where I go, God, I don't know what what you're up to. 
I'm trying to trust your timing and honestly just pray that God would give me the grace to persevere. But I think it's not just timing. It's not just perseverance that we wrestle with. I think often in in a difficult circumstance, we really wrestle with this idea of trust. That can you trust God that even in a challenging season that he is still doing something intentional? Because here's what I fundamentally believe. Uh, No one foresaw this season coming of this pandemic and all the upheaval that it's brought. But I fundamentally believe that even though God didn't cause this, I believe that God is using this to do something intentional and purposeful and significant because God is always intentional and purposeful and significant in everything he does. And so part of me is going, God, what are you up to in this moment? And so what I want us to realize is that not only can challenging seasons be opportunities to see God's glory, but notice what Jesus says next in verse four. He says in verse three, this happens so the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse four, as long as it's day, he says this, he says, we must do the works uh, of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Now notice what Jesus says. He says, we must do the work of him who sent me. And what we see is that, that God is revealing his glory in this man's life through a season of struggle. But Jesus tells the disciples, you are to partner with me in this work. And so what I want us to realize, God's glory can be seen through challenging circumstances. But I want us to recognize that we as followers of Jesus are called to purposeful action. And so what I think we see in verse 4 is this progression that God the Father sent the Son, Jesus. And he sends Jesus with this uh, mission and purpose and message of salvation and redemption for all people. And what Jesus begins to say is that the son is now likewise sending the disciples. He says, we must be about the works of him who sent me. We together, Jesus and the disciples must be about the work of the father. And what I want us to recognize church is that we are called to purposeful and intentional gospel action, even in challenging seasons. And, And notice what Jesus says. He says, we must do the work of him who sent me. He says, night is coming when no one can work. Now, now what does Jesus mean by this? Now, we have to remember that Jesus is talking in first century Israel. And in the first century, they don't have modern work lights. They don't have generators. And, and so if you're a craftsman, if you're a tradesperson, daytime is your time to work. If you're a stonemason, once the sun goes down, you're not chiseling any stone because you can't see. If you're a carpenter, you're not woodworking when the sun goes down because there's no light. You can't see. I mean, for us today, we have generators. You can light up a construction site at night with industrial lighting and generators so it's almost as bright as day. Not in the first century. And so Jesus says, there's this moment that's in front of you. If you're a craftsman, when it's daytime, you work and you work hard because that's your moment. And so you seize the opportunity. And so what Jesus is telling the disciples, he says, listen, I'm here, I'm with you. There's this intentional thing that God is doing. He says, let us seize this moment and step intentionally to what God has placed in front of us. And I think likewise, church, again, God is doing something purposeful and intentional in this season. And Jesus calls us along as his disciples to do this work alongside of him, to be invested in this gospel kingdom work of redemption that Jesus is doing, that we are to be agents of God's grace and of the good news of Jesus. Now, let me ask this question. How do, how do we respond in, in difficult seasons? I, I think there's often a, a spectrum of response that I've experienced and that I see in other people. I think often in responding in a difficult season, on the one end of the spectrum is a passive response. And sometimes this passive response, uh, which is a moment of going, ah, this is really hard. I don't know what to do, so I'm just not going to do anything. Sometimes this passive response is driven by fear. A person is just really afraid, and so they go, okay, I'm just going to step back and, and try to protect myself. 
Other times, uh, this passiveness is driven by just being overwhelmed. There's so much going on. I don't know what to do. I'm just overwhelmed, so I'm going to do nothing. At, at the other end of the spectrum is, is sheer panic. And, and I think panic is, is driven, again, it's a fear-based response that says, okay, I need to do something. I'm going to take action. And what I've noticed in myself is that in a difficult season of suffering, one of the things that I lose is I no longer feel in control. And when I no longer feel, feel in control, a panic response is I'm going to take control and do whatever I can, whether it's intentional, whether it's thoughtful, whether it's purposeful, I'm just going to do something. Now, here's my experience. When I've responded with either passive or panic, it's almost never yielded fruitful results. With passive response, I usually overlook something I should have been dealing with. With a panic response, I usually take action and do something that I later have to go back and correct and fix. So what I want to suggest to you is that between passive and panic, in the middle, there is a purposeful and prayerful way of responding. And I think a purposeful and prayerful response is let us step back. Let us seek the face of God and say, God, what are you doing in our midst? God, we know that you are a God of purposeful intentionality, that you have a plan and a purpose. God, would you show me what that is? And maybe it's just stepping back and saying, God, would you help us to know what, what is just the next step to take? But church, what I want us to recognize is that we are called to seize this moment that we're in as disciples of Jesus and recognize when you respond rightly to Jesus as Lord and say, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. Your life will never look the same because we're called to step into this gospel work. And even in a difficult moment to say, as disciples of Jesus, what does a purposeful and prayerful response look like? And sometimes it looks like just taking the next step that you know to take. Maybe it looks like leading spiritually in your family. Maybe it looks like leading spiritually in friendships. Maybe it looks like just being aware and courageous enough to push in as people have spiritual conversations. Maybe you've experienced this, but in this season, I think people are more open to having a spiritual conversation. And I pray that we would be ready and intentional to push into those. But all of this boils down to how do we respond to who Jesus is? Because in verse 5, notice this claim Jesus makes. John chapter 9, verse 5. He says, while I am in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. And may you, maybe you remember five weeks ago before Easter series, we talked about Jesus being the light of the world in John chapter 8. And Jesus being the light of the world, what he's saying is all that is good, right, and true is found in him. You want to have perspective and understand what life is about. Look to Jesus. You want to know the ultimate goodness and rightness and truth. It's found in him. And so we talked about this C.S. Lewis quote where C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sunrise, not only because I see the sun, but because by it I see everything else. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is, he says, in Jesus, I am, I'm given a new perspective. I see what the world is really about. I have a proper worldview because I'm walking in the truth of Jesus. And I think the question for us, church, is how will we respond to the truth that Jesus is the light of the world? Will you pour your life into him? Because I think what we see in the rest of John chapter 9 is, is a case study of, of different responses. Not everybody responds in a healthy way. Right after this man is healed, you'll notice there's an initial case of mistaken identity. He walks home seeing, it says, and the people around him go, wait, wait, wait. You look just like that guy who was blind that used to beg outside the temple courts. And this blind man goes, yeah, 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 it's me. I, I was the blind guy. And they go, no, 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 you just look like him. You can't possibly be him. He goes, no, 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 the man Jesus, he, he, he healed me. And so what do they do? They drag him in front of the Pharisees and this isn't a good thing. They bring him in front of the Pharisees because they, they, they want to get him in trouble, 
right? He's one of those Jesus followers. This is up to no good, right? So John chapter 9, verse 13, we pick up in the story as we hear uh, how this unfolds and how different groups of people respond. John chapter 9, verse 13, it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for if he does not keep the Sabbath. But the others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still didn't believe that he'd been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already acknowledged, who had acknowledged that anyone who received Jesus as the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So I want you to notice three distinct responses here. Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. This is the truth of who he is. Everything that's good, right, and true is found in him. But when we come to the Pharisees, the Pharisees model what I call legalistic resistance. And what I mean by this is the Pharisees know the law. They know the truth of God's word. They have all the theology down. What they don't have is a real relational encounter with Jesus. And so when God is present physically in Jesus right in front of them, they don't recognize him. And part of the beauty of what John is doing in the gospel of John chapter 9 is he's, he's weaving the story together to say the Pharisees, the spiritual elite, those who know their theology are spiritually blind. But this man who's physically blind has spiritual sight and can see who Jesus is. And church, here's, I think, the warning for us. Some of us, maybe you've been in church your whole life. You know a lot about the Bible and you have right doctrine down. You know theological facts. Intellectually, you get it. But what I want to ask you this morning is that are you continuing to have a real relational encounter with the risen, resurrected, living Jesus? Because the Pharisees, they should get it. They know the word of God. And yet they have this legalism. They go, this is the Sabbath. If this person's from God, he wouldn't heal on the Sabbath. That's working. He's breaking one of God's laws. And so they miss this work that God is doing right in front of them. And listen, I think right doctrine is important. I think good theology is important. But we can never reduce Christian faith down to only an intellectual exercise. It's not. It's about this real relational encounter with Jesus. And so the Pharisees, they have this legalistic resistance. Now, on the other hand, the man's parents, they have an overwhelming concern for acceptance. They're resistant to acknowledge who Jesus is because they want to be accepted by the people around them. So you notice in verses 22 to 24, when the Pharisees come and they ask his parents, they go, is this your son? Yeah, it's our son. Was he born blind? Yeah, he was born blind. Well, who healed him? How, How is it that he can see? And what the Pharisees are asking is, tell us about this Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? And and did you notice that the blind man's parents, they pass the buck? They go, well, I I don't know. Ask our son. He's of age. Which isn't an unreasonable answer. But notice John, what John says about the reason they said this. It said his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be thrown out of the synagogue. 
So his parents go, I don't know, ask our son, because they're worried that they'll lose the acceptance of the religious leaders and they'll be rejected relationally. And I think for some of us, you've been hesitant to respond to the call of Jesus that he is the light of the world. You've been hesitant to turn your life over to him because you're so worried about being accepted by the people, community, and cultures around you that you're hesitant to throw your life all in with Jesus, that you're hesitant to understand the goodness, righteousness, and truth that you would find when you follow Jesus because we're worried that we'll be labeled as a religious fanatic, one of those crazy Christians And we can be so concerned with acceptance that we neglect to follow him. Now, on the other hand, this man who's been born blind, he he begins to, to bear witness to truth. So notice how he responds. He proclaims truth. Verse 24, a second time they, this is the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they summon the man who'd been born blind. They say, give glory to God by telling the truth. In other words, what they tell him is, okay, don't lie to us. They say, give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. I mean, they're making assumptions about Jesus. They don't want to acknowledge him as the Messiah. Verse 25, he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And the blind man saying, I don't have the theology all down. But all I know is that he changed my life. Verse 26, it says, then they asked him, well, what did he do? How, how did he open your eyes? I, I mean, this is like the third time they've grilled this guy. And they're not accepting his answer. He tells them like, okay, he healed me. He put mud on my eyes, caused me to see they still don't accept it. So verse 27, the blind man, it goes, he answered, I've told you already and you do not listen. I appreciate his boldness. He goes, you guys are not listening to me. He says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And what I think what we have to hear in this text is, is, is a little bit of facetiousness, right? The blind man's now poking at the Pharisees a little bit. He goes, you guys have asked me now three times. Clearly you're asking because you must want to be his disciple too. Now, he knows. He can tell they're angry. He can tell they're frustrated. He knows they don't want to be his disciples. I, I, my opinion, I think, he's, I think he's poking them a little bit. And what, what happens, verse 20, it says, then they hurled insults at him. I mean, can you imagine you're sitting there with the religious leaders of the day, and they just start throwing insults at this guy, demeaning who he is. And he says, you were this, they, they say, you were this fellow's disciple. Notice they don't even acknowledge Jesus. He's not a teacher. He's not a person. That, they basically say the equivalent of like, you're following this dude. I mean, they just try to totally discount who Jesus is. They say, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Who's this guy? Verse 30, the blind man answered. He goes, now that is remarkable. And what he's doing is he's calling attention to their spiritual blindness. He goes, this is crazy. He goes, you're the the, the religious leaders of our day. He goes, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And what the blind man says is what happened in my life is utterly miraculous. Opening the eyes of a person who is born blind, he says, literally only God in his power and grace could do that. And what he tells the Pharisees, he says, you guys are so blind that you don't see the work of God when it's right in front of you. And church, as I read that this week, I I, I paused and I said, oh, Jesus, May I never get so lost in my own theology and my own religiousness that I can no longer recognize your power, grace, and movement and presence when it's right in front of me. May I never be spiritually blind as the Pharisees are spiritually blind. But I want you to notice the progression of this blind man's response. In in chapter 9, verse 11, 
there's this moment where the people ask him, they go, well, who healed you? And he goes, the man they call Jesus. And so early on, he acknowledges Jesus as a man. Then in, in chapter 9, verse 17, they say, okay, but what about this Jesus? Who healed you? The second time they ask the question, he, he says, well, he's a prophet. Now in verse 33, this blind man said, uh, he's, he's from God. Only God could do this miraculous thing. And do you notice this growing awareness of response to Jesus? He begins by saying, Jesus is a man. Then he's got to be a prophet who's bringing truth. Finally he goes, Jesus must be from God because the work that he did in my life could only be done if God were working through him. And I think this becomes a model for our own spiritual growth. When someone's far from Jesus, they might think, you know, Jesus is a good man. Maybe he's a good moral teacher. But as you encounter the living Jesus, you go, no, there's something more. And you begin to recognize that, that Jesus is, is from God, that Jesus is not just a good moral teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is so much more. This is God in the flesh. And I think the blind man, he shows us a right response to who Jesus is. And here's what I want to suggest to us. How we respond is crucial. What do you believe about who Jesus is? Do you believe his claim that he is God in the flesh? Do you believe Jesus' claim that he is the light of the world, that all that is good and right and true is ultimately found in him? You see, the, the Pharisees, they respond with right doctrine. But what we recognize is it's about a real encounter. Right doctrine is important. Good theology is important, but it must never stop there. It must be about a real encounter with the risen and resurrected Jesus. And once we acknowledge Jesus, I think there's this invitation then to follow him. Did, did you notice the significant question that I think emerges in the text? In John chapter 9, verse 28, after they hurl insults at, at this man, they tell him, you were Jesus' disciples. We're disciples of Moses. Here's the question I think is important. Who are you following? Who or what are you allowing to disciple you? Because each one of us are being discipled by something. Each one of us have a voice that we are allowing to speak into our life. And we're called to be disciples of Jesus. But, but church, I think it's really easy for us to be discipled by, by media, by contemporary culture, by social media. And one of the things that I wrestled with this week as I read this and that question that emerges in chapter 9, verse 28, who are you a follower of? Whose disciple are you? Is that if I'm spending hours a day on social media, but not investing time in prayer in the word, I have to come to the fact that I am letting media and contemporary culture be my teacher and my discipler rather than Jesus. And church, I think for some of us, we need to set down the social media. We need to turn off the TV. We need to pause from pop culture for a moment and root our lives fundamentally as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Let that question resonate with your soul. Who are you following? Who or what are you allowing to disciple you? Because I promise you, you are being discipled by someone or something. Who is it? Is it Jesus? Now, here's the thing. Rightly responding to Jesus to be his disciple, there's a risk to that. Notice what happens in verse 34. The blind man has declared, Jesus has to be from God. If, if not, he could do nothing. To this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And because of his right response to Jesus, he is thrown out of the synagogue. He is rejected. And listen, I, I can't promise you that if you respond to Jesus rightly and you follow him, you might face rejection. But what I think happens next is so beautiful. In verse 35, it says this. It says, then Jesus heard they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The blind man asked. Tell me so that I may believe. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. 
And what I love about this is Jesus searches him out. He knows that they threw him out. And it says, when he found him, Jesus speaks right into the middle of his brokenness, right into the middle of his rejection. Listen, if you follow Jesus, if you throw your life into being his disciple, you might face rejection. But even if you do, I promise you that Jesus will never reject you. That if you face rejection by family or friends or or, or, or relationships or community around you, that Jesus will meet you there in that place of humble brokenness and will speak into that loss. And as the blind man responds in verse 38, I think this is profound. Then the man said, Lord, I believed, and he worshiped him. So here's the culmination of this. In verse 11, Jesus is a man. Then the blind man declares him as a prophet. Then in verse 33, he must be from God. Now in John chapter 9, verse 38, he goes, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. And the climax and culmination is this declaration of Jesus as Lord. And church, here's what I want to challenge you with this morning, that we would be the kind of people who acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Because when Jesus is Lord, this is a a position and a posture of sacrifice and surrender of saying, Jesus, all I have and all I am is yours. I give up my plan, my purpose, my agenda for my life. Jesus, I lay it down before you. I want to follow you. And the right response to that is to say, Jesus, I believe to put your trust in him and in him, in the light of the world, to find all that is good and right and true. And I love this man's response of worship. He just praises Jesus for who he is. So I think there's this question for us, how do we respond rightly? I want to suggest to you three things this morning as takeaways. The first is a right response of worship. When you worship Jesus, it shifts your perspective. Maybe you've been rooted in fear and panic and passiveness, just feeling overwhelmed. I encourage you to spend some time just worshiping Jesus this week because worship has a way of shifting our perspective onto him who is good and right and true, onto his hope, on the redemption that he can bring. And by the way, worship is not just about listening to God's word. It's not just about singing a song. Worship is about recognizing Jesus as Lord and surrendering your life to him so that every part of your life becomes a process of worship. Secondly, I want to encourage you to respond by engaging. And what I mean by this is active engagement in the mission of God. I want to encourage you to seize the moment, not with panic, not with passiveness, but a prayerful and purposeful response to lead with gospel intentionality right in the context that you're in. And finally, I want to encourage you about the power of your testimony. Notice verse 25. There's this moment where the blind man has been grilled and grilled and grilled. What do you believe about this Jesus? And in verse 25, he goes, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And sometimes I see people who are nervous to tell others about Jesus because they go, what, what if I say something wrong? I don't know if I, if I have all the theology down. You should learn that. It's good to know and be able to explain your faith. I, learn that theology. But what I want to suggest to you is this. Don't neglect the power of your testimony. And maybe you're going, but, but I don't have a dramatic testimony. Listen, all that people need to know is I was lost, I was blind, I was broken, I met Jesus and everything changed. And God can use your story of redemption, of his work in your life in a powerful and redemptive way. So I pray church this week that we would respond by worshiping, by engaging and by sharing our testimonies well. In just a moment, Kyle and Jane are gonna lead us in a song called Give Me Faith. And there's a couple lines in the song I think are just really significant. There's this moment where it it leads us to say, all I am, I surrender. Another moment where it says, give me faith to trust what you say, that you are good and your love is great. 
So church, I pray as, as they lead us in this, let this be a worshipful response of surrender, of saying, Jesus, I trust that you are the light of the world, that all is good, right, and true is found in you, and I will follow you. And I pray this week that you experience the real tangible presence of the living and resurrected Jesus.